Well, I had a couple miscues uh, last worship hour. I uh, went up a song too early and uh, then we recovered with this song that we just sang, which was encouraging. It was encouraging for me, but uh, anyway, I think I was urgent to get up here and, uh, and preach the word of God to the congregation, and I'm urgent to get up here again and do it again. As I was preaching also, I didn't put my phone on sleep mode, and so suddenly Siri was talking to me. It's just one of those mornings, and uh, it's interesting to have that kind of happening with the dynamics of what I'm going to be teaching on. Um, I'm actually taking uh, the text this morning from Matthew 8 as a cue to open up a topic that is here, but is also broader than what's here, and that is the issue of Satan and demons, Satan and demons. And I think the Lord, just through me focusing on this text this summer, I did a lot of pre-work, I wrote a lot of things down, kind of opened me up to do something broader as we close this chapter off, Matthew 8, uh, to kind of pump the brakes for a minute and slow down and to think about what is really going on behind the curtain. Because we're living in a world that, as we trace it, is interesting, to say the least. There's differences in how people are acting culturally than perhaps ever before. Things cycle, but things also seem to amp and ramp at times. And this seems to be one where the amperage is turned up a bit. I don't think I'm just making that up. But as things amp up out there, I think even more importantly, it's, an, it's key for us as Christians to understand that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but principalities, rulers, this present darkness. There's a real enemy that is lurking out there, and the Bible at points tells us to look behind the curtain and acknowledge the enemy, acknowledge the enemies that are tempting us almost like a third-party flanking uh, temptation unit that where we're fighting our flesh and we're trying to keep our heads on straight and center on truth, there's fiery darts that are hitting us on either side where Satan and his demons are attacking and twisting things up. And we need to acknowledge that there is that realm, that there is that dynamic, it's real, and it's powerful. Every Christian whether new or old in the Lord, should have this verse memorized. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Perhaps you memorized it this way. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is Jesus in you than Satan who is prowling and roaming like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Greater is Christ in us. What does this mean? It's one thing to acknowledge that there is warfare, but it's another thing to really take it seriously. It's one thing to read it on paper, in, the, in your Bibles or in your theology books. It's another thing to say, that has probably some real bearing on my life one way or the other, and I need to figure that out. I'm confident in my position in Christ, but I'm also sobered by the reality that I've got an enemy out there who's trying to take me out of my game. He's trying to wreck my family. He's trying to wreck my faith. He's trying to make me 
useless because of moral failure or seemingly useless, where you think you can't rebound from some sin and you're conscience stricken in that way. He's trying to get your eye off the ball and keep you from wrestling with the fact that we've been saved by grace alone and not by works. He's out to distract you. He's out to divide relationships, divide friendships, divide the church. We need to know what's going on. And so I thought I would just pump the brakes because our text in front of us is about Jesus and how Jesus excises a legion of demons out of two demoniacs. So that became kind of a platform for my thinking. You know, people think about demons even outside the church and have in every culture. Superstition reigns large in uh, culture and history. People have always been superstitious of the howling wind and is that a demon voice or a night's voyage where you're out on the high seas and you're wondering if I'm seeing demons out there. People always are thinking about where demons come from and who they are. Ancient cultures hearing demons in the desert. People going to Bible um, areas where in Genesis 6 pre-flood, the antediluvian period where there was the 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 group known as the Nephilim, the giants in the land, and did demons come and cohabitate with them and then their offspring are the demon race. There's historic ancient names like the Shadin and Lilith that are the male and female demons, the Lilith, the long-haired female demons who were targeting children, thus the rise and need for guardian angels. All of that is kind of mythological data that's that's added to the bible to try to reconcile what's going on egyptians uh, targeted demons for people's health maladies there's 36 areas of the body that a demon could inhabit or occupy epilepsy mental illness were attributed to demons people still do that ancient middle eastern uh, culture said that there were 7.5 million demons around. They give a number to how many demons were around. You have 10,000 on your left, 10,000 on your right arm. And how do you reconcile all these demons? You say, well, that's ancient culture. But superstition is, is um, it's really paying the bills for Hollywood as well, right? All movies, uh, most movies are engaging and interacting with some other unseen realm or demons attacking people in their beds and whatnot. And these aren't just movies that come out on the big screen. They come in, they're streaming in to people's uh, devices all the time. People want to be spooked out. They want to be freaked out by what they don't understand. But really, watch this, what they know they can't control. There's something out there. There's something that's lurking between the physical and the spiritual, and it's an enemy or there are enemies, and it's not just something that goes bump in the night. It's something that's threatening to me, threatening to my conscience. I can feel it. The hair on the back of my neck is standing up, and so I want to scare myself um, sane by sitting for two hours or whatever in a movie about something that's terrifying. Not even at Halloween, but Halloween, the hype around here with Halloween is, again, people saying, I'm going to face my fears and engage this death culture and demon culture that I know is real, but I know I really don't have a hand on a handle on at all. Remember Jesus, a few uh, verses up in our chapter was confronting the would be disciples that were saying, Hey, we'll get in the boat with you and follow you. And Jesus said to the one that said, let me first bury my father. Let the dead bury the dead. There's a, a dead culture, a dead world out there. That wasn't Jesus being cruel about family. He was saying, don't think like the world thinks. We're not in darkness. We're not 
We're not in a sea of obfuscation where we don't really understand um, the fogginess of, of, of the spiritual realm. We don't, we don't get that. No, the Bible actually gives us a handle on what demons are, what they're about, what they're doing, and what we should do about it. Ephesians 6 is a strong passage that talks about the, the spiritual invisible realm and taking up the shield of faith to extinguish, extinguish flaming darts. Earlier in that chapter, there is Satan himself who's devising schemes to twist truth and messed up the way we think. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ, not life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities. So we're saved, so we're secure in that sense. Greater is Christ in us than Satan's attack. But at the same time, we're being attacked. So what is our standing? How are we supposed to feel about this realm that is uh, happening all the time? It's a live realm. There were 185,000 that were struck um, in the camp of the Assyrians, 2 Corinthians 19.35. We know there's a lot of them out there. So superstition aside, how powerful are demons really? I think the movies that talk about something going bump in the night really do a disservice to how powerful demons are. Psalm 103 talks about God's mighty angels or mighty messengers. Well, a third of those mighty messengers fell and they're the demons. How many of them are there? Well, around the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5, you, you hear of a myriads of myriads of beings worshiping the Lord Jesus a myriad is 10,000. So it's 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 times. So it's an uncountable number of an ocean of beings that are worshiping the Lord that are the angels and a third of them fell. So that's how many there are. It's a whole lot of them. And they are, to say the least, and they are out to mess us up. Daniel was delayed 21 days, three weeks by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. So the Lord sent Michael the archangel to help him, to help him. Fallen angels, they account for our need to take up the full armor of God. Take up, take up, take up all these pieces of armor, one being the shield of faith to extinguish these darts, meaning we have to refortify. What do I believe? I believe the gospel. I believe the truth. I'm using a promise to fight back this demonic Attempt to dismantle me. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He can't ultimately undo your faith or take away your position in Christ, but he can derail you. He can sidetrack you. He can divide the church. Demons are condemned. They are hopelessly condemned because Revelation 12, I believe it is, the dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars which is to picture the fate of these fallen angels someone who has nothing to lose but only the motivation to take you with them is very dangerous they want to take you down their end is hopeless demons they were what first went wrong in heaven think about that Pride and unholiness invaded heaven, then invaded the earth through the serpent and Satan and his temptations. It's the injection of sin and rebellion that hit our world because of demons. They fight Christ, they twist truth, they promote and teach what is false. 
the doctrines of demons, they assault the faith, and they terrorize people and destroy them. I was thinking about, this is an anecdote about a pastor in a church, a large church, who suddenly had a bunch of people visiting on a Sunday morning. It was so many people, hundreds, that they decided to meet them in the choir loft and say, explain why you're here, what's going on. And they said, well, the church we live in teaches that Satan runs, um, has a complete run and rule and reign in our house, and we're afraid to leave our children or our babies in the next room because we're afraid they'll be killed. They'll be murdered by demons. We don't know what to do. We need to hear about God and Scripture and get regrounded in our position and stance as to what to do with the unseen realm. Is God sovereign over the demons and the devils or not? And we need to understand how a demon is dangerous and how Satan is dangerous and in what sense we are protected and covered by the sovereignty of God in this and then what to do about it. That's my burden. Understanding what's there and understanding what to do about it. Understanding that we are safe and understanding that we need to be sobered and alert at the same time as First Peter talks about, right? How do we find that balance in the Christian life? peeling back the curtain and saying what is really going on behind how our world thinks and the assaults that are that are against Christ. I mean, here's some doctrines of demons. Jesus is, you know, sort of the ecumenical Jesus for all the different participate participating religions or, you know, the syncretized movements where people are rallying together under all kinds of broader motivations. And they say, we all worship the same Jesus. That's a false Christ. That's that's an antichrist. The authority of God's word, well, it's true in part. Some are more authoritative than others. And some of it, you know, is really not culturally relevant now and is even offensive. It's hate speech. That's demonic. That's the devil. Where's the devil these days? How dangerous is he really? Well, he flies by stealth usually. And you have overt things where you're talking to one person face to face and they're claiming to be God. That Those Moments have happened to me. They happen, right? But then you have other moments where you have the smiling televangelist who's saying, hey, just believe this for health and wealth. You don't need to suffer. Just enjoy life. That's equally dangerous and very dangerous and demonic. The one who's smiling and the one who is frothing is equally dangerous. It's distortions of truth. It's where people make the gospel inclusive rather than narrow road exclusive. So where do we stand? Where do we stand? Demons, they cannot penetrate your soul, but they can penetrate your thinking. Think of 2 Corinthians 10.5. Paul said, I'm destroying, I'm battling speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. I'm taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's strong warfare language. That's fighting the good fight of faith. That's That's Paul fighting for truth, but he's recognizing that Satan will stir a speculation in a mind so quickly. He'll stir a doubt in your head. A demon will get in your head and you'll start thinking, you know, is Jesus really God? Is it all real? Is the Bible really truth? All these other people don't believe it, so why should I? It's satanic. And it's not just ideological or or thinking stuff that Jesus tempts. It's also moral. It's moral. There's a, a false teaching in the church that is called hyper grace. It's 
It's where, oh, you know, we can't talk about moral commands in the Bible because we're all under the new covenant of grace. And so there's no responsibility for our sins. There's no real accountability there because we're good. And it'll all reconcile in the end. There's also um, with that the idea that hell isn't real. How could you really fathom somebody dying and being in hell forever? I mean, those are stirring temptations to think about, um, to think that way. But those are cover for immorality. Because with um, grace-only thinking, where you're not thinking about accountability and obedience in that, you can just do whatever you want. And with no hell, there's no accountability of God's holiness in that. So with those temptations, people fall back into their old habits. It's like a dog returning to their vomit. False teachers love to promise these things. Oh, just do it. You'll be fine. No consequences whatsoever. Just pay me a lot of money. That's what, that's satanic. That's false teaching. People say, well, the devil made me do it. The devil never made you do anything. We're, as Christians, we're empowered to resist the devil. We just have to be spiritually minded and obey the Lord. We have to follow his example. The devil doesn't make us do things, but he does flank us. As we're fighting our own flesh face to face, the darts are coming in a crossfire. And Jesus modeled how to resist the devil. Remember, this might be a paraphrase, but in the wilderness, Jesus, as he was being charged into ministry for his three-year run, um, Satan said, feed your flesh after he had fasted for 40 days. Feed your flesh, stones to bread. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to live and eat on the word of God. That'll sustain me through. Scripture's my food. Test the Lord's power. Act presumptuously. Jump off the tower. The angels will save you. No, you don't put the Lord to the test. Number three, you can have it all your way. You don't have to suffer it all. Just bow down right now. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, all the glory you want. He said, no, I'm not going to take that worldly path. I'm going to suffer. You say, how are those relevant today? Well, think about it. All the temptations are, hey, get your, get your flesh fed right now, your way, not through marriage, but through media. Do it this way. Feed your flesh. Gorge yourself. Have it now. No, I'll trust the word of God. I'll reframe my thinking with the word of God right now and take charge by submitting to the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Hey, jump, just do it. Just take a risk. Leave that person. Leave your marriage. Blow it. Mess up. Nope. Nope, I'm not going to presume upon God's grace. I know God's grace is there. The safety net is there. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. I know I'm saved. I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit, but I'm not going to put the Lord to the test, right? Shall we sin and sin that grace will abound? May it never be, right? That's Romans chapter six. We, we've got that accountability. And then thirdly, you can have it all your way. This is the, you know, the gospel on TV. You can have everything you want. You don't have to suffer You don't have to take hits. You don't have to take stands. You can just have an easy Christian life experience, and it's all about that anyway. I think even some of the Christian family movements are pushing that subtly. I would just be very careful about that. Your kids can be perfect. Your life can be perfect. There's no suffering. There's no confrontation. Just get along and relate. No, you have to take stands. You have to defend doctrine. You have to stand for truth. You have to fight the good fight of faith. That's what Jesus is saying. There is suffering before the crown. Well, our text is bringing us to an engagement with demons, not a single demon, but multiple demons, a legion of demons, thousands of demons. That's saying simply this, our world is demon soaked. 
Be not deceived. Behind the curtain, there are demons. And this is a way in the text, I think one of the clearest ways to see demons up close and personally and to see how Jesus addressed them. He was fearless. He put the demons on the defense and gives us this window to show us how we're supposed to feel about demons and about how we approach them and what really is going on. But before we do, I I don't want to miss the moment to also talk for a second about the ringleader of the demons and that Satan himself. This is a window also into who he is and his realm. Satan is a demon. He's a condemned fallen angel. He uh, is given a ton of attention in the Bible story, the big picture meta narrative, right at the beginning, you have Satan who's puffed up in pride and he falls in sin with the, I wills, I will, I will trying to ascend and take over God's throne. Then he falls like lightning, a picture of his condemnation, but he injects his sin in and through Eve and Adam and Eve's temptations and they fall. And then Satan is crushed. He's predicted to be crushed. The serpent's head will be crushed by the heel of Christ. And that's, that's fulfilled in the gospels. And then ultimately it goes through the church where Satan and his demons are attacking. And that's the stage that we are in, in redemptive history. And then finally at the millennial kingdom, um, Satan is put away for a thousand years, but he's given the opportunity, the allowance to come out one more time and do a coup takeover with probably the grandchildren, great, great, great grandchildren of the millennium that rebel against the righteous remnant. And they're all together as this coalition and the Lord eradicates them ultimately in fire and judges them, putting them in the lake of fire forever and ever to be tormented. This is the storyline of scripture we're supposed to know. We know that a third of the angels followed him in mutiny and rebellion from the beginning. We know he's called the father of lies. We know that he's here trying to derail people's confidence in the coming of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, and the cross of Christ. We know Job was assaulted by Satan. We know that saints like Peter, who was putting himself out there for Christ, trying to, at an early stage, protect Christ from the cross, which was actually a subtle satanic lie. His motive on the surface was what? I love you, Jesus. You can't die and go on the cross like a common criminal or like a, like a horrible criminal. And that was satanic for Peter to say. Paul was attacked within the church by people who were demonized false teachers, the messenger of Satan, which is the thorn in the flesh. That word messenger is angelos of Satan. Someone who was demon inspired was attacking the credibility of Paul. And that's the theme of 2 Corinthians where Paul said, please take this from me. He prayed three times and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is what? Perfected in weakness. So we're sobered by demonic realities, and we should. You should be sobered by that, even though we're protected from them utterly and ultimately. Does that make sense? So we're trying to find that balance. How do we find the balance that the demons are real? They're behind the curtain. We need to acknowledge that Satan is alive and well, and we're to resist him. And we're confident in that, but at the same time, we're sobered by this reality. Who is Satan? Satan is called the serpent, the wolf, the lion, the demon, the beast, the antichrist, the dragon. He's the God over every other religion but the true 
religion of Christ, believing in Christ alone for salvation. He's everything pagan. He's everything sensual. He's the governor of all of that, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He's leading the schemes that we're wrestling against. Ephesians 6, 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, this present darkness, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. It's easy to forget that this is real. So you say, if Satan is that vicious, what does this really mean? Well, think about it this way. Satan flies by stealth, and so people forget about Satan. They forget about the demons. It's all really mythological, right? People don't acknowledge that there's warfare going on. How many people have heard of, how many people have known an atheist? Raise your hand. Be bold, okay. How many people have ever seen on TV or whatever an atheist? Okay, all right. How many people have known somebody who is an ah-Satanist? I don't believe in Satan. Yeah, okay, one, two, three, four. Okay, we see the difference. I mean, Satan is wanting everybody to believe he's not even real. He's not even there. He's not doing what he's doing. He's an angel of light. Light is his cover. Just to look good, but he's real and he's a thief. Just to steal people from heaven, from being saved in the first place. This is a raw passage that I'm going to read and get into. We are going to get into our text. It's a window in how Satan destroys or attempts to destroy two demoniacs lives it's a clarifying passage revealing on the outside what's going on on the inside mark and luke are are more detailed about the passage so i'm going to dip into mark that's kind of what's expanded this into a two-parter matthew is more of a summary of what's happening the details fill out the story though and show that this foreign experience that christ has with these two demoniacs is really not that foreign to us at all let me put it to you this way Before you were saved, you were in the same camp as the demoniacs. And then after you encountered Christ and were delivered from the domain of darkness and clothed in your right mind, you're in the same new camp as the former demoniacs who are now believers. To be an unbeliever is to be under the headship of Satan. To be a believer is to be under the headship in the family of Christ. You're in one family or the other. So the demoniacs are an extreme, overt, outward expression of what a demon has, demons have done to people and are doing to people pre-Christ. So there's a pre-Christ and a post-Christ. And we can relate to both realms. We need to see that and we need to relate to that. From that perspective, we also need to look at this passage through the lens of how Christ approached the demonic realm. He did, as I said before, fearlessly. Every Christian was born under Satan's curse, and every Christian has been likewise delivered from the same curse. We have been, as I put it, this is the title of the message, saved from Satan. We're saved from Satan. Scripture shows these dynamics, it pulls back the curtain and is showing us what is really going on and where we stand in light of what is really going on. We need to know it. It's a lot of shakeup in our world. We need to be grounded into what is really fueling it behind the scenes. Fair enough? Okay, that's the intro. And I'm at page seven, so it was calculated. We're good. 
So we're going to watch and learn from Jesus and how Jesus deals with demons. What does it mean? Here's your outline header. What does it mean to be saved from Satan? Number one, you're saved from Satan's realm. Let's look at verse 28. It says, when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. Let's stop there. You'll remember the disciples had gotten to the boat with Jesus. There were other boats along for the ride. There was a massive storm that hit um, the Sea of Galilee. They were coming from the west side of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, the large town. Jesus was going for rest six miles across, if I have that geographically correct, going southeast um, to this area of the Gadarenes, and, which is more of a desolate place where he was looking for some respite. The disciples along the way, their faith was tested as we talked about the storm kicked up and Jesus shows up and calms the storm miraculously and immediately. So they come out to the other side, and the other side is the, as verse 28 puts it, the country of the Gadarenes. This not to be confused by Mark and Luke's representation of this area, which is um, the Gerasenes. And the Gerasenes is just a way of saying that the town that they walked to, as they put, uh, put out onto the shore and docked their boat, a big commercial fishing boat. They, they stepped out. Mark and Luke say that the disciples were there, at least at the docking point, And probably all of them walked inland six miles to a little town called Gersa, which is also um, called Cursa, uh, renamed that way. And it's a little town that archaeologically, um, archaeologists um, uncovered and, and showed there to be cave tombs butting up against the town, facing opposite direction. You have the town here and you have some distance between the demon, the area of the demons and death, and that's the cave tombs that are there next to Gersa. That's where Jesus walks up to. Gadara or the Gadarenes, that's more of an umbrella of the county that Gersa was within. So you have the area of the Gerasenes and also um, the Gadarene or the Gadara area. Verse 28 is taking us right into it, though. There's an immediacy to what's going on. Two demon-possessed men met him. The focus is on two demon-possessed men and Jesus. The disciples aren't mentioned anymore in any of the three narratives at this point. It's Jesus versus two demoniacs. Mark and Luke just highlight one of the demoniacs. But if you understand gospel harmonization, you understand that different authors are emphasizing different things. And so in Matthew's case, he's given the broad overview, the 30,000 foot. There were actually two demoniacs, but one was outspoken and one was really the one that Jesus was addressing. He addressed both, but he's in a dynamic dialogue with one of them, the one that Mark is highlighting and Luke is highlighting. But there were two that were there and they were, as the text says, fierce. They were fierce. They were bold. As Jesus, the light, walks up to this town Gersa in Gadara, as he's walking up, they're running out of the caves. That's what Luke's gospel talks about. They were running, and Mark talks about that, running up to him boldly. And I would say it was quite a scene, quite scary, in fact. How scary? Well, there's two of them, not one, and they're fierce, and they're formidable so much that um, no one could pass that way. They were endued with supernatural power and strength. They were holding the, the cave areas with uh, force. 
almost like a troll holding the bridge. They were monstrous, powerful. Um, Those that had been, there had been attempts to subdue them with chains and they would break the chains with supernatural power through lacerating their wrist and, and, and using the stones to cut their wrist free. So they were very, very terrifying. There was a Protestant missionary from the 1800s, W.M. Thompson. He was a pastor's kid in the Presbyterian denomination, and he went to work in Ottoman Syria for 25 years. And he began in 1833, and he wrote a book called Land in the Book. And I looked it up and kind of found a PDF and read some of this. Um, 19th century, he saw men exactly like those who were demon-possessed in this account. He said there were some very similar cases at the present day furious and dangerous maniacs who wandered about the mounts and slept in caves and tombs. And their worst paroxysm, they were quite unimaginable, prodigiously strong. And one of the most common traits of this madness is the victims refused to wear clothes. I have often seen them absolutely naked in the crowded streets of Beirut and Sidon. There were also cases where they would run wildly about the country and frighten ones in the neighborhood. It's terrifying. If you've ever met people who are crazed, who are out of their head, who where all of their inhibitions are down, as I said before, where they feel like they have nothing to lose, but only everything to gain. Those who are in a drug induced state, they're terrifying because they have no limit to what they may or may not do. And they don't care what's going to happen to them anymore anyway. That's what was running at Jesus. This is the situation where Jesus, who's just excised or exercised, demons on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, six miles away in an all night prayer service two evenings before is now standing there. And he's like the shepherd who left the 99 to go for the one lost sheep. It's just Jesus and two. What's more important? Well, you have the crowds and then you have the two. You have the crowds who are coming, knocking on the door with helplessness saying, Lord, help me. And you have the two that are running at Jesus in a crazed state. And Jesus is facing this situation with the same level of importance as his prior situation. Mark 5, 2 gives the immediacy as he came up. They immediately um, came to him. They stepped out. Jesus stepped out of the boat. I would insert that he walked six miles, but immediately they met him out of the tombs. They were approaching Cave tombs, Jesus and the disciples were, and these two with unclean spirits, Mark 5, 2, came. How fierce were they? Well, they were like an unstoppable force. They self-mutilated using rocks. There was no deterrent to their strength. They were like, probably like a Charles Manson with superpowers. Think about it that way. Um, In Mark 5, 4, it says that they were breaking the shackles into pieces. Violently, the Greek would picture violent rubbing, where they're rubbing the shackles together at a level where they're melting off their wrists. The Greek words piled together from Mark and Matthew and Luke would emphasize incredible power. Mark 5, 5, um, the man's problem or both of these demoniacs, they were shrieking day and night, crying out, shrieking using Flintstones to lacerate themselves. Mark 5, 5. The tombs, this is a picture of my first point. We're saved from Satan. And point one, we're saved from Satan's realm. Remember, these demoniacs, as crazy as they are, really make the the case that Jesus, if he's willing, can save anybody, right? 
I mean, one of the great parts of seeing how monstrously grotesque these men really were is to say, if God can save them, they can save anyone. But we know our own sins. We know where we come from. We know that before Christ, we were lost and Jesus has saved us as well. We were taken out of an unclean realm. The tombs for the Jew would have been an unclean place. You can't go there. You can't ceremonially touch someone who is of the dead or in a tomb existence. The Jews superstitiously believed, superstitiously believed the demons lived there. But in this case, they were right. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. For us, it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were in the tomb. In which you once walked following the course of the world, of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following Satan in the tomb of our own death, sin, existence, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the sons of disobedience. This is the world that we live in. This is the domain of darkness. 1 Corinthians 5 5 is the picture of the church and how church discipline can bring a person to the end of themselves so that they can be saved. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, it's the idea of step four church discipline where Paul is saying to um, the Corinthians, you need to, as a church, actually put this so-called brother who's involved in incestuous immorality, you need to put this person out of the church and deliver such a one over, literally it says, deliver this man to Satan. What does that mean? It means put them in his realm. Take away the blessings of Christian family life. Don't aid and abet this person's sin, duplicity, hypocrisy. Pull, pull the curtain back and put them out. Expose them to themselves, just like you're kicking somebody out of the house, where they're outside of the comforts of the church. Oftentimes, someone who's put into that state will see the hopelessness of this world and will come back like a prodigal son and say, I repent. I need the Lord. I don't want that family. I want this one. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, which is who is the image of God. What does that mean? That means when you're giving the gospel to somebody and they are unreceptive and they can't even put the pieces together of what you're trying to say, Satan is involved in that, stirring the mind of a person to really make the gospel sound ugly. And offensive. That's why people say, oh, that's hate speech. That's too exclusive. That's too narrow. You're saying that you're right and everybody else is wrong. All that is Satan talk. It's uh, what I used to call kind of like the guitar distortion thing is happening. And beautiful music turns distorted and grungy in a person's mind and they get angry at you. And um, that's Satan's realm. We've been delivered from that. Secondly, we've been saved not only from Satan's realm or this world. We've been saved from enslavement, sin's enslavement. Verse 29, verse 29. And behold, they cried out. These are the demoniacs. What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? I love these questions. Jesus is approaching these scary men. Fearlessly. And these questions are exposing their state of mind as they approach Jesus. They're not trying to run Jesus off. They're actually running to Jesus with questions, wondering what their fate is going to be because they know they're in the presence of the Son of God. 
One theologian said that the disciples who had been on the boat in the storm, who were doubting Jesus, they didn't get it. They didn't know really who, was, who they were in the boat with to save them. But the demons got it. We'd rather be like the disciples, confused and Jesus being patient with us, right? But the demons, they knew who they were engaging right away. These scary demons turned very quickly into scared demons by being in the presence of Christ. They call him the son of God. What literally, what do you have? This is what the Greek language would say. What, you know, what have you to do with us? Um, That would switch in the Greek language. What do you have between you and us? In other words, what is our issue here? We need to know where our standing is. We know we're judged. We know we're condemned. We know our fate is sealed. But we thought we had some leash time right here to run and some space to do our worst and try to bring people down with us. And with Jesus, there's no competition. But they're trying to debate with Jesus. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They knew their end was sure. It says in James that the demons believe and shudder. They had enough belief, not saving faith, but they had enough knowledge of what was going to happen to them that they're asking about it. Remember, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We are the ones who are more than conquerors. We are the, one, the ones who are promised an inheritance in heaven. We're the ones who are going to heaven where there's no more death, no more dying, no more sickness, no more tears, and no more demons. There's no demons in heaven. We're saved from that. We're called in light of that. This is how we feel about demons when we're tempted to despair, to doubt, to speculate, to divide these temptations. We're called to say no. All right, like be gone, Satan, what Jesus said. I'm going to go for the word of God, not instant gratification. I'm going to go to the word of God in the normal Christian life. I'm not going to tempt the grace of God in my life. I'm not going to jump. I'm not going to do those things. Okay, suffering, something happened in my life that I didn't account for. I didn't expect. I didn't want this to, my, to happen to my friend or my family or my loved one. But it did. And I'm going to take the path of faith and suffering. Not bow down and I can just have it my way. I'm going to bow to my flesh, which is really bowing to Satan. I'm going to resist the devil and, and then count as certain that he will flee. I'm going to resist. Turn away from that. Resist the devil. And if you do that by the power of the Spirit, the promise is that he will flee every single time. It says Jesus, um, it shows Jesus coming up to the demons and they're immediately reacting to him. In the other accounts in the Gospel of Mark and Luke, it says that he, is, he was trying to cast out the demons. He was calling them out of the demoniac, but don't misunderstand that. Jesus came up there fearlessly, sovereignly, in full confidence and power. And he wasn't failing in his mission. He was actually provoking the demons to expose themselves for who they really are, what was really happening. 
As I said before, the disciples, they had doubted in the boat, but ironically, the demons had no doubt whom they were encountering. So do you realize that before Christ, you were in complete bondage to sin? Titus 3.3 actually says, we ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures. We were enslaved to our sins. We had the shackles on our wrists that we couldn't get out of until we came to Christ. We've been delivered. People who were enslaved to addiction and sexual immorality, as was mentioned, these demoniacs probably were, they were naked. I think the other um, Mark and Luke talk about that. There's perversion to them. They were enslaved. Being enslaved and acknowledging that, used to, that you used to be a slave of sin and have been delivered from your sin when you, we sing Amazing Grace in a minute or two, that acknowledgement is an evidence that you have been saved. Do you realize that? If people aren't humbled by their former state, you know, that's, that's a concern. We see how bad we used to be and that we've been delivered. That's how we need to think. The Pharisees, they didn't get that. When Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles confronted the Pharisees and said, you know, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. That was super offensive for them to hear. They're like, we don't need to be free from anything. We are of our father, Abraham. We're not, we've never been a slave to anything. And Jesus responds in John eight forty four, you're of your father, the devil. Here's the warfare. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. Before we were saved, we had no discernment. We couldn't see truth. Romans 6.12 says you were slaves of sin, but now you're freed in regard to righteousness. You know, the demoniacs, again, I said this earlier, they are proof that God can save anyone. Digression, digression and self-destruction is to follow the path of Satan. Peter started down that path when he denied Christ three times, but was later restored because he repented. Judas, he followed Satan all the way to his own self-destruction, even into eternal hell. Mark 5, 6 says that in parallel and cross-reference, when he, meaning One of the demoniacs saw Jesus from afar. He ran and fell down before him. Why did he run? I think a couple reasons. I just want to point this detail out. One, um, a demon-possessed man knows that Jesus is the only way out. So instead of running Jesus off, there was a sense in which this man was running to Jesus for rescue. And at the same time, these devils that were in the demoniacs were submitting themselves under the lordship of Christ. They believed and shuddered. They were paying homage to the son of God. They were recognizing that their fate was sealed and that their time was coming. And one day they knew that as Philippians 2.10 predicts, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord. Those on earth and those that are in heaven, and those that are under the earth. What does that mean? I think the underworld, those who are condemned, will also bow before the Lord. So there's a yielding, there's a contesting against Jesus in this. And Jesus is, Mark 5, 8, and Luke 8, 29, commanding the unclean spirits to come out, and he's prompting for their begging to, uh, to come out. He also later... 
Um, Mark 5, 9 says, he says, what is your name? And they replied, Legion. Why did he ask them their name? Did Jesus need to know their name to excise the demons? No, he's exposing the magnitude of what's going on. Remember, don't underestimate the power of Satan, the power of devils, the power of demons. It's real. Legion is a military term for the Roman military battalion of 6,000 men. It could mean that there were 6,000 demons present. Um, Mark's gospel says that there were 2,000 swine or pigs that were there that the demons were going to be thrown into. So there were at least probably 2,000 demons present. Mary Magdalene only had seven excised from her. This is 2,000 or 6,000 demons, perhaps in each demoniac. We shouldn't underestimate that, but we should also see that God is that big. So here it is. How do we approach this realm, Satan and demons? One, with full confidence, like Jesus, fully fearless, strong in the Lord. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And yet, at the same time, sobered to fight. Strong in the Lord and sobered to fight. Standing firm in the hope of the gospel. We got that. Got the helmet on. We got our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. We're digging in with our spiked boots. And at the same time, we take up the shield of faith to extinguish the dart. Okay, I'm going to not think that way. I'm not going to go that way. I'm not going to bow down to my flesh right now. I'm going to counteract that with truth. I'm going to fight the good fight of faith. I'm going to destroy speculative thinking and take all those thoughts captive to Christ's obedience. That's what I'm going to do, firm in my faith for the Lord. But I'm sobered by the, by the onslaught, but I'm secure in Christ at the same time. That's Jesus. That's how he approached this thing. That's God talking to Satan and the sons of God, the demons that approached him for Job. And God is saying, have you considered my servant Job? God allows for things to happen in our lives and we don't understand why. But at the same time, the big picture point of Job is God is sovereign and nothing could destroy Job's faith. So we love and live within the sovereign care of the Lord. We know he is sovereign overall. Martin Luther said the devil is God's devil and the devil is on God's leash. We trust him. Well, we've gone through a couple points. It's a little bit of a different kind of sermon, um, kind of a sermon before the sermon lead in with the story. Hopefully it's wetting our appetite. Um, we've been saved from Satan. How? We've been saved from his realm. We've been saved from this world. And we've been saved also from enslavement to sin. And that's really the enslavement that Satan is under. And then thirdly, we're going to learn next week, we're saved from certain judgment And then there's some surprise points as well that are ahead with finishing out this narrative.